Welcome to In Scripture Podcast. We're so glad to have you with us while we dive into Scripture to dissect God's Word verse by verse. Listen with us and don't forget to leave us questions and feedback as we journey through His Word. Welcome to In Scripture Podcast. I like your intros way better, Mark. Your voice is more serious. I don't, I don't know about that. It's more appealing to the ears. Yes. You should just do the whole podcast. You guys stop stroking my ego. <laughs> we're patting it. Um, we're excited to gather here today to do another sermon review. Um, this one might be a little bit different, but it also might be the same. I don't know. It depends who you are. Yeah. What kind of sermons you enjoy listening to. Um, before we start, though, why do we do sermon reviews? Obviously, we want to cover... What is being preached from the pulpit? Um, is it being preached properly, contextually? Is there a background given, historical? Um, how are the words treated? Is it verse by verse? Does the preacher stick to the same passage and really teach the word of God? Or is it more topical? And so we look at all these things. And number one thing, obviously, is is the gospel being taught some way? Is Jesus being taught from a sermon some way? Which, you know, you can't always do perfectly, but... Scripture is just so amazing. I think Jesus is in pretty much every, almost every passage you can think of, you can put Jesus in it because um, it's all about him. And so we're excited to listen to this to this preacher. Um, a lot of us probably don't know him. Actually, none of us probably know him. I'm the only one that knows him. Um, you want to give an introduction who he is? Sure. Um, this is Pastor Mark Rag. He's the pastor at Saving Grace Bible Church. It's a church in Florida. Um, actually, it's a church that I went there. I have a little bit of a bias, um, so I will try not to focus on that too much. Uh, one thing I think that is going to be a little bit different about him, and I think it could be, it could vary on the preacher as well, is people preach differently. He has a, a little bit of a different approach to quite a few of his sermons where he likes to have an introduction before he starts reading. So I think we'll mm-hmm. experience that here. Um, and we can talk about it. Anytime I hear Bible church in the title of the church, I get really excited. <laughs> Hopefully uh, it'll be a solid sermon, which I think it is. Um, but before we start, I want to kind of cover this. So do you have to be a preacher to do some proper sermon discernment? What do you guys think? No. Why not? Why or why not? Can you be we, anybody? <clears throat> Wait. Let me first clarify your question. I take my answer back. <laughs> clarify your question. So do you have to have some type of background in ministry of preaching? Do you have background of pastorship or anything? What is What do you have to, what's your background got to be for you to do a sermon review inside your head anytime you're listening to a sermon? Or just there practice discernment. Or can anybody do it? In terms of, I guess... I'll, I'll t- two points, I guess, that just come off the top of my head. Structure-wise, I think you might have to know a little bit more than your average listener in terms of how to structure a sermon, mm-hmm. right? So it can be properly delivered. Uh, the other part is the theological grounding, right? That I think every person inside the congregation, every listener needs to be able to p- continually practice every time they hear any mm-hmm. sermon. So 
Um, do you need a high educational degree background? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But I, there's a lot of material available to now to us now today where you can you know buy a boot camp course that teaches you how to preach and you can get you know maybe 60 70% of the needed information of what is a structured biblical sermon that you can then use and see and i guess be lovingly critiquing your yeah. preachers what about you mark yeah i agree um i think discernment uh in order to practice discernment within a sermon depends on specifically what you're looking for. If you're looking at whether or not they're preaching the Bible, most every Christian should be able to discern whether or not what is being preached is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at least you, I think, goes along with what Serge said. You have to be biblically grounded as well as theologically grounded and have an understanding of the passage. And we are called to test everything, everything that we hear. Um, but I think if you're going to be doing any sort of critique or um, something along those lines, there needs to be kind of a more thorough, I guess, maybe library of you actually listening to other sermons rather than to a single preacher or pastor, but listening to multiple that'll get you an understanding, but also to have conversations with either um, your friends or with those that have heard the same sermon to talk about it. Did you understand this? What did you not understand? So that way you can actually have an understanding of how maybe different people understand the sermon. Maybe they heard something differently than you did. So I think there, the, the more you listen, the more you talk, the more I think you can actually be more confident in your understanding of what the passage is about, but also how well the delivery was. Yeah. Um, I like the things you guys brought up. I feel like some of the things you guys brought up isn't necessarily a requirement, but it helps. And so this is where I'm going with this. We all have the same Bible. We all have the same God's word. If we have it in our hands, um, regardless of what translation it, it most of the time you're you're getting the same information. And so if you're at church and if you hear a sermon, it is your due you got to do your due diligence open to that passage. And when once you do, you are now much basically you you are more likely to understand or try to get yourself into the passage while it's being preached. And I personally don't think you need any type of background, but you do need to read your Bible, obviously, right? I don't I don't mean that you need to know all the deep theological issues and questions, but you do need to have the gospel, you know, kind of put in the back of your mind. You do need to read and you do need to understand what is being taught, but also read your Bible while it's being taught. I think if you do that, you start to develop a process. And so because because you might not disagree or agree with one thing or another while you're listening, you can always go back and go through and study what was preached. So um, what's awesome about expository preaching or how m- many churches do it is when it's word by word, verse by verse in a, in a book, you know what's coming, right? But you know what you just covered as well. And so you can always go back and reference and try to uh, dive in as your personal Bible study that you should do at home. Um, but when it's topical, sometimes, you know, it could get difficult, but you could still note down the passages. And if for some reason you don't have your Bible, you can always come home and study up on it because you can't, you know, do a Bible study while it's being preached because you're not listening to the sermon. So, um, although, yeah, a lot of the things you guys mentioned, definitely, they definitely will help you do it way better. Yeah. That makes sense. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, but I agreed. I think anybody, anybody sitting in a pew listening to a sermon, 
um, can, can do this. And I think everybody should do this. You should, you should always, you know, process everything that's going, that's being taught to you. Um, we're going to do some of that today. I think we're going to be doing Romans seven. Yeah. Romans seven verses one through six. And I would definitely recommend to read it ahead of time. So that way you can kind of understand maybe why the intro is what it is. And it's going to be probably a good 10, 12 minutes of just Mm -hmm. intro before he actually dives in. Yeah, we're excited. Let's do it. Ready? Yep. All right, here we go. Well, we're in Romans chapter 7, and thrilled to get to this section of Scripture. I've been waiting for a long time, and it was on my mind, the, and it's this passage that in this section kind of brings it out, that the Christian life is a, a life of... Um, of complexity, a, a life of contrasts. Because we can aptly describe the Christian life like this, that we are not under the law, but we are free to keep the law. We are not under the law. We're not under the laws as a source of righteousness, nor, un, nor are we under the law in fear of condemnation. And yet, in Christ Jesus, we fulfill the law. We keep the law. This seeming contradiction, seeming dualism, is really the struggle that we have in trying to describe the Christian life and the walk of sanctification and the work of God within us. And so I'm thrilled for us to get to Romans chapter 7 and we start to unfold the principles that Paul brings out here in chapter 7 and move into chapter 8. This is an important study for us. I've been thinking as a Christian, as a believer, uh, about the law for a long time. And I know that there are errors on either side. We can err on the side of legalism, that we go back to the law to create a source of rules and regulations for us to keep to try to attain a righteousness whereby we would be pleasing to God. Or we can err on the other side, antinomianism. Antinomian comes from the word anti, it's against. Nomianism is from the Greek word namos, law. It means against the law or lawlessness. So you err on either side of legalism or lawlessness. And right in the middle is the biblical path. And I trust as we navigate through Paul's teaching here, through chapters 6, 7, and 8, that we would have a proper gospel-centered perspective of the law of Christ, the law of love, the, the work of God, and our relationship to not only God's present working, but even as he's worked through all of scriptures. So we got a very careful road for us to walk ahead to get through these themes. But I remember my first exposure. So I wanted to pause it real quick. Um, <clears throat> I appreciate how he said that while we navigate through Paul's work, and he mentioned chapter six, seven, and eight, uh, what that tells me right away, no matter if I know this pastor or not, that tells me that his congregation is constantly getting fed um, expository preaching from the same book. Mm-hmm. And so why that's important is because, like we said earlier, right, you now have a point of reference and you have a, a picture painted of the proper context. So if six, seven, and eight chapters are involved in, with some type of uh, law and how it, how it's important to us. It it just makes it all the better to be kind of in that the whole time. 
um, because there's obviously other passages he could have easily jumped to uh, to talk about the law in the Bible, but it's cool to know that he sticks with the same book. And so I think um, that's very, very, very high value to me, at least personally. Yeah, I agree with that. To the topic of the law and its work, I had just listened to an apologist by the name of Greg Bonson. And Greg Bonson, in a classic debate uh, entitled The Great Debate with This is when he was younger. He he debated an atheist by the name of Gordon Stein. The Bonson-Stein debates was carried out in a public forum at a uh, public university in California. And in it, Bonson argued from a presuppositional apologetic. He had argued, presupposing the existence of God, from that vantage point, then all the world can make sense. How we can have laws of logic and uh, laws of morality and mathematics and grammar. He can, the existence of these laws are evidenced for a God. And he, he presupposes the existence of God and then argues for those things. Stein, of course, rejects that, and so the whole debate goes. It's a great debate in regards to how the Christian worldview understands the world around and the impossibility of the contrary. In fact, that's what Bonson argues. He argues from, you need my worldview, every other worldview is impossible to keep, so you have to borrow from mine. And from that whole debate, it was, a, again, in a, a fundamental uh, moment in my early Christian life. I loved to listen to Bonson. He actually died at a fairly young age. I think he was like 48, so I got two more years to catch up to him. Um, but there, he died at a young age, but it was a brilliant mind. So I investigated Bonson. I started saying, all right, if he did this, there must be some other good resources of his. And Bonson was... One who believed and taught a doctrine called theonomy. Theonomy is the belief of God's rule and reign. And he believed that we should reinstitute the reign of God on earth. He was part of a group called Christian Reconstructionists, which, by the way, the very idea is gaining steam today. Over the last couple of years, with uh, all that's been going on in the world, with uh, you know the rise of you know woke agenda, the rise of CRT, the rise of what we see, the political climate around us, there are others coming along saying we need to bring order, and what's the best way to bring order is God's rule. So they're introducing the rule of God. Well, Theonomist came along, and Theonomist said we can set up the rule of God, the reign of God. And that's what we're going to do. Hand in hand with theonomy became postmillennialism, and postmillennialism was the belief that we will bring in the kingdom of God. We will restore everyone to righteousness. We're going to reestablish the righteous reign of God among the people. We'll set up God's kingdom. We'll set up the kingdom of Christ. We will make people holy. We'll go spread the gospel throughout the world. People will become increasingly more Christian. The world will get set up in order, and then Christ will come and sit on his throne. So this was Income's Theonomy. Serge is enjoying this. Theonomy says, all right, the best way to have the rule of God is to institute the law of God. And so Theonomists would go back and say, we should reinstitute the whole law of God. We reinstitute everything that Moses commanded. We reinstitute today, and we follow the, the Ten Commandments. We follow the moral law. We follow the law of Moses. And they seek to set up. In fact, in this... 
Um, Greg Bonson and Gary North wrote a book defending theonomy. And in their defense of theonomy, not only did they seek to set up the commands of God, they also seek to set up the punishments for violating the law of God. I thought it was rather humorous if they didn't actually believe it, but here is the defense for stoning. Think about if you violated the law of God, they would defend that we should go back and stone somebody who uh, violated the law of God. Imagine the change of church discipline if, uh, you know, we instituted stoning. But here is their argument. Their argument was this, that rocks are everywhere. I mean, we can go out in the parking lot. We can find a few rocks. They're everywhere. And rocks are cheap. So it's not going to cost us a lot to introduce this. And they're effective. Yeah, so everywhere, cheap and effective. I mean, I can't fault the logic. Everything about it is right and logic. Now, Mark, did he, does Mark believe all this stuff? No. Okay. no. At the very beginning, he, he said there's two extremes. There's legalism and then there's anti-whatever. That, that's the one. And so he's kind of talking about the extreme of one right now, where it's complete legalism of actually taking the law of Moses and bringing it into our modern day and age. Now, there is like a, I have heard a slight, like a watered down version of, of a belief of this, because people are out there saying that the law is, the law is perfect, right? Because it's, it's, it can only benefit humans. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just miss the fact that there's no way you're gonna you're gonna successfully do it. Yeah. Um, is it beneficial? Yeah. As you know, a lot of stuff like, for example, we we brought this up sometimes, but you know, the the foods we eat, like not eating pork and not eating certain fish, it's all beneficial for you. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can follow everything. And I think people that are pro law of that need to understand that even if you tried, you can't do it, even though it's a good idea. Yeah, I just I've never came across this before. To me, this is a, kind of new <laughs> that this this theology. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. But I've heard it. I've heard it from. It guys. definitely sounds extreme. Yeah, some well, guys preach prison reform like that. They yeah. they go into well back in the biblical days, like stoning and lashes. Like instead of putting people to prison, paying taxes for them to be in there, you can you could do stoning, not stoning, but you could do lashes you know, and, and stuff like that. And it's just like, they use that as a kind of like a gateway. So I've heard of it before. I think the reason why he also brings it up, because he says it's relative. Um, this guy who actually wrote the book, even making um, reasons as to why stoning is good, was somebody that was alive not too long ago um, and was having debates and stuff. So that's why I think he's also bringing it up. So okay. we're aware of it. But doctrinally, I struggle applying it, especially in light of Paul's comments here in the book of Romans. When Paul says, we are not under law, but under grace. And that we've been freed from the law. And that we're dead to the law. So understanding whatever it is that we are, it certainly isn't reintroducing what the Old Testament and the Mosaic law was. So that set me on my journey as a young Christian thinking through these things. And if you continue on that journey, everybody has a, a, an understanding of how to view the law. I mean, I would have uh, considered myself early on in my own Christian journey uh, a Reformed Baptist. And good Reformed Baptists, we hold to the 1689. 
And if you go to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, you're going to see a strong emphasis on the law in there and the work of the law, the moral aspect of the law ruling in the Christian life. But you might even look at the law through the lens of a, of a covenantalist, that the church is the Israel of God. And by the way, we'll get to that in Romans chapter 9, so just hold on to the question. But the covenantalist looks at the church as the continuation of Israel, and therefore they would look at the Old Testament law as being applicable because we are the Israel of God. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, would look at that and say, well, no, the law for Moses, uh, the law was for Israel. The law from Moses was for Israel. And when Christ came, he, he fulfilled the law. He completed it. We're under something new. We're under the law of Christ, the law of love. And so we are under something completely different. These are the various arguments, the various ways in which people try to understand the rule and work of the law in the life of the believer. And it is important for us to be able to navigate through this because it's going to influence how we respond to the scriptures, what we look to for the scriptures. For example, if you were taking the the dispensational view of the law, you would tend to uh, struggle with looking back in the Old Testament because, well, that was for Israel. They do. They certainly go back. They certainly go to the Ten Commandments. just makes me wonder why they do. And if you are the covenantalist, you're going to be inclined to look at New Testament priority and read New Testament back into the Old Testament. All kinds of, again, ways in which our theology shapes our perspective. What we want to do here is understand the Christian relationship to the law as Paul is unfolding and defending his gospel Not necessarily concerned where this lands us, but much more concerned with what did the Apostle Paul teach so we understand what our perspective ought to be when we consider gospel and law. This is what Paul unfolds here. He begins to teach us in... So I think up to this point, he's kind of been talking about um, different views of the law and kind of briefly explaining them. One of the other things, too, I think that he points out from the beginning, and I think everyone here can agree, is that this is a question that everyone kind of has to come across uh, regarding the law of God, the Old Testament law specifically, and how that applies to us as Christians. So um, if you're a brand new Christian, first time hearing this, this might be even a little heavy. Um, for you to kind of get a grasp of this. But maybe I think uh, this passage in Romans 7 will help explain as to the Christian's uh, relation with the law and what it really means. And then later on in chapter Romans 7, it actually talks about the law is actually good and what the law is good for. But from a Christian perspective, and that's what this sermon is about, is how does the law relate to me as a Christian in the present current day? In this section of Scripture, he is defending the law. It's a natural question at this point, because he had stated already uh, back in uh, verse 20 of chapter 5, when he says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. The purpose of the law was to increase the transgression. It exposed sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. To which then Paul goes in and defends grace. Chapter 6 is a defense of grace. 
Chapter 6 is a defense of how grace leads us to live a new life in Christ and live under the, the work of grace that we live in Christ and for Him. And as we saw last couple of weeks, from 15 to 23, we have a new master. Grace of God has set us free to be under a new master. The master is righteousness. This righteousness reigns within us now. But then the question would be, all right, if the law only stirred up sin and we're not under the law anymore, then the law must be useless. It must have no purpose. And this is where you need to understand the historical setting because maybe you and I would be tempted to say, yeah, it's useless to us. We don't need it anymore. But that would not be a very profitable argument for the Apostle Paul who's attempting to win over his Jewish brethren Particularly chapters 9, 10, and 11 demonstrates that when he demonstrates the work of God among Israel. And again, we will punt those questions to that time. But it was a concern of the Apostle Paul. What was God's work among his people, the Israelites? What is our understanding of the gospel? What is our understanding of the law? I can't just write it off. In fact, any religious Jew at this time would think and watch very carefully how Paul would treat Moses and the law of Moses. Is Paul going to write it off? Is Paul going to disregard it? Is Paul going to trample the law? Is he going to, uh, to minimize it? Because if he trampled Moses, then he was going against our traditions and immediately he'd be written off. The Jews during this time would have evaluated the teaching of Paul against the law of Moses. They did that to Jesus. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22 just to set this up. I want you to see that, again, rightly so. If we were going to measure the truthfulness of any idea, we must take them back to the Scriptures to verify if they're teaching in line with the Scriptures. This is exactly what happens to the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was in uh, his Passion Week, his final week on earth, and he'd already entered into Jerusalem and turned over the money tables and driven out the money changers. The next day, he is being tested by the various religious elite. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 40, A lawyer comes to Christ. Notice verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him. And notice what he asked him. He said to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now here's the test. All right, you know Moses' writings. So in the the law there, the article, the, indicating a particular body of truths, this is particularly the, the commands of Moses. What is the greatest commandment of Moses? By this time, the Jews had actually developed developed a very sophisticated system whereby they numbered every one of the commands and they gave a number, order, a priority, and weight to it. So a higher number, a higher weight. So they wanted to see how he was going to think through this. To which Jesus responded in this way, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. He summarizes all that Moses taught in these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. By verse 46, it completely silenced them. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. The test and the approval. As to just show you, in this time, there was an open evaluation of anyone who's coming along teaching a message. They had to be consistent with the Mosaic law. They had to honor it. They couldn't dishonor the Mosaic law. I'll turn back to Romans chapter 7. Whatever we do, heading into this text, and however we work through it, we don't want to dishonor the law of God. Now I even say that phrase, the law of God. And there are so many things I could mean by that. I could mean the Ten Commandments. I could mean... All the commandments of Moses found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Or I could mean all the scriptures. That is, that's how the psalmist uses the law, referring to the scriptures. And so this adds to the complexity of the doctrine of the law. What are we actually referring to? And I believe when you begin to look at the context, which you'll see regularly coming out as this. When it refers to all of scriptures, it's usually just law. So you look back into Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. For you are not under law, but under grace. This is the idea. You're not under commandments. You're not under just indirect all scripture. You're under grace. But then you come into chapter 7, and notice the definite article, chapter 7, verse 1 that the law has jurisdiction over a person. And notice verse 4, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Verse 6, but now we have been released from the law. Definite article before the law. This is referring particularly to the commands of Moses. So all this to say is that context indicates to us exactly what is in mind of the author when he is writing this. So I wanted to pause there. Um, What he's doing here, and I think you guys will agree, is even though he hasn't started the verse uh, exposition yet, he has given us a very, very good contextual overview of what what Paul is writing, why he's writing it, and to who he's writing it. And I think he's going to... He's going to get a little more into this before he reads our Do You Not Know Brothers. Um, and he and you'll notice as you listen that he actually explains who the audience is. Mm-hmm. And that's very important to understand as you're listening to a sermon. You want to keep these things in mind. How is the passage introduced so that you may uh, kind of put yourself inside the text? Yeah, and I think if you were even listening, because right now they're in Romans 7, pretty much in the middle of Romans um, if you were listening to previous verses before, there was multiple emphasis on the audience because this is a mixed group of people. It's not just Jews. It's not just Greeks. Yeah, Paul it, changes it up. Um, so he changes it up. Mm-hmm. And I think he's actually going to make mention of that again here. But that was the whole point of bringing up why can Paul, why can Paul just not say the law doesn't apply anymore? Mm-hmm. But he has to actually 
point out the law because of the Jews that are there. They have to, if Paul just says the law is nothing anymore, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I will say that um, he does, like you guys said, set a pretty solid foundation for, for sure for the, I assume this is still the introduction of his sermon. Pretty much. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, almost 18 minutes in mm -hmm. and he's still on the introduction. Right. Yeah. Which, which it's, is one thing that kind of, that's a little bit too long. It, <laughs> it bothered me a little bit. And, but there was no other than the, the long intro that you might lose somebody listening. There's really no downsides of it. You have to kind of understand this. Yeah. He could have took some, some little stuff out, I think, but, um, like some of the personal stuff. Yeah. Every, every congregation knows their pastor. So mm -hmm. we can't sit here at this table and say necessarily that what he's doing is could have been better because his congregation knows him. So yeah. if they, if they understand that he does these kind of intros, they, they already expect that. Mm -hmm. And so we, as outsiders, we can only assume we, he hasn't that. said anything wrong. Right. Yeah. Nor he has he said anything, anything that doesn't apply to the passage or that's not explained. He didn't throw something out there that could have, uh, needed more explanation. Mm -hmm. he, he pretty much stated things as they need be. Yeah, I guess for me it's just a personal bias. I get, I get very uh, disconnected. Yeah, and I start hearing people get very repetitive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And if I was, I guess, I'm, I personally might have a problem seeing in his congregation because, for me, if if he is that is expository preaching preachers verse by verse from chapter one, verse one, and now he's in chapter seven because chapter six talk, uh, talks about this. Chapter five, I think, is the one that kind of starts the whole law thing. Mm -hmm. So if he's been preaching on this for sev probably several months now, um, to me, it's like it's he's repeating a lot what he has pre probably previously said in previous sermons. So uh, again, it's not wrong. This is just me from a personal bias kind of opinion, how I, my listening uh, attenuates, I guess you say. You can say, but I guess it's not bad. He's still, for a new listener, it might be pretty good for sure. Yeah. I think it also depends on what you're used to listening. And up to this point, you're like, are you going to, are you going to preach about it or not? Yeah. Because if this is your first time listening to him, I would agree that it's hard to kind of be like, is he actually ever going to get to the passage or not? He will. Um, and I think, um, if you're used to listening to him, you, this is actually might be yeah. beneficial because for me, I'm thinking along this point, he had that introduction where he talked about his own personal search for the law um, at when it started, at what point and the different kind of forks in the road that he's come across up to this point. And I think knowing that it makes it relative for me as a listener being like, he may have started this completely different than I have, mm -hmm. but it does show that when he did come to this subject, he had to search, he had to look because um, there's so many mixed viewpoints out there. And one thing that he did say is a lot, there's a spectrum, right? And one will lean, uh, lean way to one side and one will lean way to the other. But what is actually the truth? What does the Bible teach us? Yeah. I, I just wanted to point out if you guys remember, our last sermon review with uh, Tim Tebow on the book of John, if you remember his introduction, he said four stories mm -hmm. that I think took him almost 20 minutes to do before he even said where he's going to be preaching. Yeah. 
and they um, didn't relate to each other really. Yeah, and it was really hard to exactly relate to them or grasp exactly what the actual intent of the stories were until like I think almost the end of his sermon. So it's here I can it's definitely different. I think this is definitely a better introduction because he's actually setting the stage based on scripture, not just personal experiences, although there was a little bit of that with uh, his friend, but that was, uh, I can see where that was very intentional. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Tim Tebow, it was very hard to get the intent. So I, I just wanted to point out that contrast. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, go on. what's going on? So what Paul is doing here is that he is defending a proper perspective of the law. The law isn't a waste. The law, the law isn't useless. But the law doesn't rule over the believer the same way it rules over the unbeliever. I can say it like this and defend it here from what Paul is going to say. The law is for the lawless. The law is for the unbeliever. The law, the commands of God, are for those who are in rebellion against God. Because the law is a path of righteousness that if you follow it, you would be righteous, is also a revelation of condemnation for one does not keep it. They are under the righteous judgment of God. The law is for the unrighteous and the unbeliever. And as we're going to see, by the way, I'll just give you the end so you see the whole picture. Turn over to chapter 8 and notice verse 2 through 4. Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Paul's saying here's a competing law. We have the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. We have the law of spirit of life in us. Verse 3, for what the law, now here's the commandments of God, the rule of Moses, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now notice verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here's the key. We do not live under the law, but we keep the law. We do not live under the rule of the law, and we don't live under the fear of punishment from the law, but we fulfill the whole law in Christ Jesus. That is riches of God's gospel. Now, you'll hear this over and over for the next few weeks to make this clear to you. I want to start to unfold how Paul argues this. That's the big picture the summary of the whole discussion, Paul is not coming along to dishonor the law. So why even Jesus in the Sermon on the Just wanted to get you guys' take on what do you guys think about giving the answer before you even actually opened the passage or started explaining the passage, because that's kind of what he did. Is I think it's a technique. That's all it is. It's a style of preaching for mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary, but at the same time it doesn't hurt. Yeah, I think it's a technique if if that's how he preaches. Um, there is uh, some sense that um, he kind of 
implants the final conviction in them mm -hmm. without guiding them to it mm -hmm. so that they come convicted to it themselves. I guess I'm not sure if I'm phrasing it right. It's mm -hmm. like, here's the answer. Now, keep that in mind. I'm going to tell you how. So you you already have it set mm -hmm. in your mind that, that this mm -hmm. is the right answer. No matter what he's going to say now, this is the right answer. I think that's one way to look at it. I, but it could also be like, here's the destination. Now just pay attention how we get there. Yeah. So He gets you thinking about what he's saying. Yeah. It is. Yeah, if if used right, which I'm sure he probably will, I think mm -hmm. it's fine. Absolutely, yeah. No Sorry to interrupt. I was just had that question. It's okay. Just don't. That's do it the again. whole point. <laughs> <laughs> We've only spoken like three times this whole sermon. It's okay. Twenty minutes in. All right. On the mountain it says, "I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill." I'm not removing this. I'm not abrogating this. I'm fulfilling it all. In fact, even. Notice verse 12, Paul says of the law, the law is holy. This is Romans 7, 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He is upholding the honor of the law. It's holy, righteous, and good. So if this law, which is holy and righteous and good, is a source of death for us, what is our relationship to it? Again, the average person today is just get rid of it. Move on. But that's not Paul. It's certainly not in his context, and it's not his perspective. So to gain his perspective, let's just look at these first six verses. Let's Yay. do it. <laughs> Romans chapter 7. What he gives us here are three truths. He gives us, first of all, the reign of the law. We see that in verses 1 through 3, the reign of the law. Then he gives us the deliverance of the believer. That's verse 4. The believer is delivered. And then, verse 5 and 6, he contrasts the condition of the unbeliever and the believer. So you have the contrasting condition of believer and unbeliever, the deliverance of the believer, and the reign of the law. That is this section. So let's just work our way through this. The first principle. The so what he does there, um, for something to kind of leave as a lesson to all of us listening, uh, what he does there is called breaking down the immediate context. So what he's going to give you is he's going to give you not only his talking points, but what he's taking from the scripture and what the scripture is actually talking about. Um, like a very topical view over certain sections of verses. Yes. Yeah. He's like grouping a couple verses together. And a, pointing it as a single bullet point. Yeah, definitely something to always look out for when you're listening. The reign of the law, verses 1 through 3. Here's what he says. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. 
What Paul establishes here, first of all, is the reign of the law. What is the jurisdiction of the law? Now, it's important for us to grasp this principle as he starts. He identifies his audience. Notice. Or do you not know brethren? And the question would be, who are the brethren there? He clarifies it. For I am speaking to those who know the law. Who are the brethren who know the law? Well, obviously it would be Jews. They were the ones who were given the law. They're the ones who know the law. But it's important to see this, that Paul regularly changes gears as to what audience he's talking to in the book of Romans. I'll show you this. Start with, go back to chapter 1. Let me just show you a few oh, times. Mark's favorite done. thing. That's where he got it <laughs> from. Romans chapter 1. Go back to Romans verse 1. <laughs> verse 1. That's where you got it from. It all makes sense now. Bro, how do, how do we not see this? <laughs> now you know. You'll listen to all these sermons, and he's like, let's go back to Genesis. <laughs> just kidding. It's a Florida thing. Okay. Um, I like it. I like it. <laughs> Um, I will say one thing that I personally don't like what he's the way he's preaching. Um, and it's just, again, it's just a me thing. He, he, he didn't read the whole passage that he's going to be breaking down. Mm. He only read the, the verses that are, are relevant to his first point. And he's probably going to do that to his second point, probably to his third. So like he said that he's preaching, I think verse one through six. Yes. Yeah, he did. Um, although the way he phrased that was by, breaking down his three points, his three main talking points. Um, but he never, he, he didn't read his first six verses. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just for me. That's just me personally. I think could be maybe better because it helps you see the whole picture, the whole passages and how the, those three points actually relate to each other. Maybe better. It would point to the foundation of where the sermon is coming from. Yeah. But the, again, that's just me. I don't think it's necessarily wrong what he's doing. It's just... um it's just not how I personally would do it. Yeah. But he also kind of did read the first three sections. Cause at first I thought he was going to start reading and start explaining. Cause there are those people who like the moment they start reading, they start explaining it as they're reading without even reading any context. Mm-hmm. So he kind of did, but kind of didn't. And yeah, I agree. Uh, but yeah, Romans chapter one, let's go. <laughs> Verse seven. I think he said, he identifies here that he is speaking to the whole church. Notice, to all, he is writing, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he writing to? He's writing to all the saints in Rome. He is to all believers there, everyone who's embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts off by this greeting to all. From there, he unfolds his personal ministry. He talks about the work of the gospel, why he's not ashamed of it, what the gospel reveals. Well, then he goes into chapter 2. And from chapter 2, verse 1, through verse 16, he speaks to Jews and Gentiles alike. Notice chapter 2 in verse 10. Uh, or you can, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so from chapter 2, 1 through 16, he's speaking generally to all Jew and Gentile alike, not just believers, but everyone out there. And you're only in one of the two categories. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. So he's speaking to all people to which he defends in that section the law of God written on the heart. But notice 2.17. From 2.17, he narrows his focus down. Notice, but if you bear the name Jew, 
and you rely upon the law and boast in God and you know his will and you approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. This is the Jew, the one who has received from God the law and the prophets, the one who walked in the traditions and the customs. He narrows and he starts to speak to them and he starts to, you remember in that context, say, you're not a Jew outwardly, but you're a Jew inwardly, the work of God in the heart. He continues speaking to the Jews into chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what benefit? He's saying, all right, if my Jewish customs and traditions didn't profit me anything, then what's the benefit of even being a Jew in the first place? To which he answers that. He, great in every respect, verse 2. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he goes on and defends God's work among the Jews. So from 3.1 through 3.20, he speaks specifically to Jews and addresses, again, the fallenness of man, etc. Well, 3.21 through chapter 6 and verse 23, he changes gears. And now he talks about talks to those who have been saved by grace through faith. Anyone who's embraced the gospel, that's why he says in 321, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice, for all those who believe, there's no distinction. He's now referring to everyone who believes. And he defends the gospel. He defends justification by grace through faith alone. He defends it from the Old Testament. He defends in chapter 5 the superiority of Christ against Adam. He then defends the work of the gospel in the life of the believer in chapter 6. And now we come to chapter 7. And now in chapter 7, he switches gears again. Do you not know, brethren, for now I'm speaking to those who know the law. Switches gears back to the one who is under the law. And by the way, he does this again in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's asking the very question that would have been on the heart of the Jew when Paul is refuting the law or he's giving an explanation for what the believer's relationship is to the law and the believer is no longer under law. The question would be in the Jew's mind, then is it the law's a problem? Well, he asked that in verse 7. He asked it as well in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? You know, in all of this, Paul is directing his arguments to a particular audience. That is essential for us to catch. Now, with all that history, let's actually get into his argument. His argument is rather simple. The law reigns as long as somebody is alive. Once somebody's dead, they're no longer under the law. So when you die, live it up. Right, the law. Once you're dead to it, that you are not under the rule of law any longer. And then he illustrates it—a real, rather simple illustration. There is a woman who is married, and while she is bound to her husband uh, in life, and they're married, if she left her husband and married another man, she would be an adulteress. But if he died, she is freed from the law. She could marry somebody else, and she would be free to remarry. She wouldn't be an adulteress because the law only reigns while one is alive. That principle is simple enough. 
And so Paul establishes in that principle the jurisdiction of the law. The law reigns over the living, those who are alive. By the way, just a little sub-note here. There are many, there are some who I teach in 1 Timothy 3, 2, the phrase of an elder qualification being the husband of one wife. And they would conclude, as a husband of one wife, it means that a husband, uh, an elder could never be remarried, even if the wife had died, because it's always to be married to one woman. And yet clearly here, Romans 7 would indicate, once the wife has passed, he is freed up, he is no longer under the law, he is not violating this one-woman-man idea. But that's a side argument. We can debate that some other time. But that's first principle then. First principle, jury. Um, so he kind of very briefly explains, but he just says it's very simple, and he doesn't really go into too much detail apart from kind of explaining what the example that Paul himself brings. Because I think it's all self-evident and self-explanatory, and he doesn't have to go specifically word by word and explain what it means. What do you guys think? Also a question apart what that kind of side note he made in first Timothy and when it talks about qualifications of an elder. I'll answer your second question first. I don't think it was necessary to make that side note. Okay. I mean, I mean, was it part of the message? No. Did he do anything wrong with it? No. Mm-hmm. Our pastors, pastors always make these side little hooks all the time. Especially if it maybe it came up recently in conversation. Maybe. And he'll be like, I use Romans 7 specifically to answer this question and say it no longer applies. Yeah. I mean, may, maybe that topic came across him one form or another recently and he maybe just felt convicted to say that. So I, I don't think it was necessarily wrong. Is, is it part of his main message? No. But. Considering his long intro and his survey of the passage already before even getting into it, I think it was just, um, it might have taken up time that he could have used. Yeah. Yes and no. I agree that it's not necessary, but also for me and my mindset, it's kind of like planted a seed. So the next time that comes up, I can actually bring it to memory, which is interesting because my... Uh, pastors preaching on Titus right now, which also has qualifications for elders and very similar topic came up and I remembered the sermon and I shared it with him. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Just a random thought out there. Yeah. But at the same time, it's very interesting that he made this correlation of how uh, the law reigns over a person while he's living. So it reigns over you, but you're not under it. That's the idea of the, that's, that's what he's been saying this whole time is that we're not under the law. We keep the law, but we're not under it, but yet it reigns over us. We're free from it, but it's beneficial for us. Oh, we'll see why. And it's for the unrepentant. But I, I think he's kind of explaining, first of all, here, maybe we'll get to it towards the end, but how I understood it is any law in general applies to only the living and not to the dead. Like if I put my fence on my neighbor's property while I'm alive, I can be penalized for that. But if I die, it no longer applies to me because I mean, I'm dead. But he brings kind of a different twist on it where he's saying, 
well, this one, if the husband dies, this woman is no longer uh, under obligation because her husband died. And therefore that contract is only made with the living of marriage. Yeah. I mean, like for me, just coming into this, you know, fresh, new first time, I'm at this point, I'm a little bit confused because this whole time he's been saying, you're not under the law, but it rains over you because you're alive, mm -hmm. but we're not under it. But it he hasn't explained it. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what I mean. So at this point, I'm kind of confused at that. So I'm kind of interested to see where he mm -hmm. goes with it. Okay. Jurisdiction of the law is while one is alive. Second principle that Paul brings out here, the believer is delivered from the law. Notice verse 4. Therefore, <clears throat> my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So he, got, he establishes the first principle, the law only rules while one is alive, and then he establishes the se second principle, in Christ you die. In Christ and through Christ. And notice this phrase here, you also were made to die through the law, or die to the law through the body of Christ. Made to die there is in a passive voice, meaning the action of the verb is done to us. It's something outside of us being done to us. You were made to die to the law, and then the source through Jesus Christ. It's through Christ we died. Those who've been born again, those who've been united to Christ, have been made to die to the law. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. We are delivered from being under the law because we have been joined to Jesus Christ. And that's why that phrase there, through the body of Christ, is important. Because we've been joined to Christ and united to him, we have been removed from being under the rule of law, and we're now under the rule of Christ. The rule of grace, the rule of his spirit, the rule, the spirit of the law of life. Because we've been joined to Christ, we've been joined to another. So this is the second principle that what Paul's saying is that the law isn't abolished. The law still rules. It just doesn't rule over the Christian because the Christian has died and been joined to Christ. And you think at that moment, all right, we've been joined to Christ, we're dead. This means this is where we get to live it up, right? And that's what he says in verse 4, actually, why have we been raised up with Christ? He was raised from the dead, notice, in order that we might bear fruit to God. We've been joined to Christ for a reason now. The reason we've been joined to Christ is now we get to bear fruit through the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear fruit to God. We live for the glory of God now because we're not under the law. We're under Christ, and it's through Christ that we're alive now. And now we're free not to live in sinfulness, not to live in unrighteousness. We are free to bear fruit for God in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we're free to live in our newness of life. In Christ, we're free to demonstrate our union with Christ. In Christ, we are free to show our new life. 
In Christ, we are free to live in the fruit of newness of life. We are free of the fear of condemnation. We are free to uh, no longer have to seek to earn righteousness. We have righteousness in Christ. We are free to reflect the glory of God because we've died. We've died to our former life. We've died to being under the law. We are now alive in Christ. That leads us to the final point. So I will give him, um, I guess, credit that he did answer my question pretty mm-hmm. much right away. <laughs> yeah. With, with point two answered my question. So, um, yeah, I think he did a pretty good job explaining it um, about what it means for us to be made dead to the law. And pretty much just because Christ fulfilled it for us and it's now imputed to us mm-hmm. through him. Yeah. I agree. One thing for me that uh, stood out that maybe not so many attentive hearers would be able to pick up was the fact that he very briefly made this point where he says you were made to die to tied to the law. Mm -hmm. He says that's actually a passive. um, What does that mean to us? That means that when I was made to the law, it's not like I was forced to do something by myself or that it was an action or deed that I actually had to do which someone would would think made to, right? Mm -hmm. But it was actually passive. So when I accepted Christ, I already passively died to the law. And it's not something that I did that caused me to do that apart from um, being joined to Christ. Yeah. And he said that this is something that's done outside of you by someone else. Yes. Meaning God. Exactly. So yeah, he did a good job on pointing that out. So yeah, so far so good. All right, last point. Paul makes then the contrasting conditions between the believer and the unbeliever in verses 5 and 6. This is really, really helpful here because I believe that what Paul ends up doing here is now unfolding for us his argument through the rest of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, and I'll show that to you. Contrasting conditions, notice verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter." The contrasting conditions now of the believer and the unbeliever. First, he focuses on the unbeliever. And these are, again, contrasts. The unbeliever is described in verse 5. The believer is described in verse 6. The condition of the unbeliever and the believer, Paul puts side by side here, and he describes it for a while but now. And he speaks even in the past tense. They were, we were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit to death. But now we have been released. We have died to that which we were bound. We now serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. These contrasts. So first, the unbeliever. Notice verse 5. There are four characteristics of the unbeliever in verse 5. The unbeliever is in the flesh. You see that there? While we were in the flesh. And we were in unbelief when we were in this state. We were ruled by sinful passions. 
And the third characteristic, not only was the unbeliever in the flesh ruled by sinful passions, those sinful passions were stirred up by the law. Every time the law came, it aroused more, more sin. The law only provoked and increased. And again, that's exactly what Paul said back in Romans 5 and verse 20 when he says there, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. It's consistent. The law came to stir up evil. To which then the fourth characteristic, these passions were at work in the members of our body. So we were in the flesh, we were controlled by sinful passions, these passions were excited by the law, and it bore fruit in rebellion. We actually acted out those evil deeds. That is the condition of the unbeliever. The unbeliever, anyone who is not in Christ, is living in a position where they are ruled by the flesh, they are ruled by sinful passions, and whenever righteousness comes, they, they fight against it. They press against it. Only The standard of righteousness only irritates them and causes more evil, to which then they walk in unrighteousness. Key here, and I want you to see, is the phrase in verse 5, for while. Two, two subjunctives, two subordinating subjunctives, describing here even a time, for while, and then the verb tenses, past tense, you were aroused, were at work in the members, is past tense referring to a former life, a former time. Paul speaks of this, this past condition. So it's interesting that he does this here, and this is awesome to do. Um, this is a little bit of a, a word study slash syntax, pretty much explaining how words here relate to each other and what do the words mean as in their tense and what are they trying to get the reader to understand. Um, these things are very vital when it comes to good preaching is you do want to cover these things because um, especially if they start referencing it to Greek, um, it really helps you understand, right? Because a word can mean many different things. Mm -hmm. And so once you explain what it actually means here, um, that's just all the more teaching that you're receiving. So it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think he kind of makes the point here where for, for a while, right? Pointing to the fact that this no, this law no longer applies to the Christian, mm -hmm. and I think that's exactly where he's gone. Because when you were not a believer, when you were not a Christian, while that you were in that state, this is who you were, and he explains the state of the person. But now, and then he explains the state of a Christian after he has been born again. For while we were in this place. We were in this fallen condition. This was the unbelieving. And that's why, again, uh, he is speaking to the Jew here, the converted Jew at this moment, speaking about this is what your condition was before you believed. But now, now we come to the second half of this, the but now indication, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We're free. 
Our former life was that being under the slavery of the flesh. Our former life was under the rule of sinful passions, that whenever the passions came and they demanded us to act, we gave in to those passions. And whenever those passions were confronted by the law, it only created more passions, and we walked in rebellion. That was the former life, but now. But the conjunction with then the adverb now, now is the time reference, at this moment, now, he's saying, now what? And he gives here a description of the believer, and he gives three qualities of the believer. What are we? We have been released from the law, he says. That is to say, we're no longer under the law's rule. The law is no longer a source we go to to try to gain righteousness. And we're not under the law in fear of its condemnation. We have been released from the law. Why? Verse 6, he continues, the second aspect, because we have died to it. We have died to the law. We died to that thing that we were bound to. We are dead and the law no longer rules over us. The law which reveals the path of righteousness, the law which, if kept, would gain righteousness, if you kept it perfectly, would prove you to be righteous. When you tried, you actually found you couldn't keep it. Therefore, you were under condemnation. We are free from that. We've died to it. The third characteristic of the believer then is we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We live and walk in the spirit of God. Spirit rules in us. Spirit reigns and directs. We walk in newness of life in the Spirit of God, in Christ Jesus. So we can say it like this. We live in holiness, not because we live under the demands of the law, but because we live by this Holy Spirit who leads us into holiness. We live for holiness, not because we're trying to obtain a righteousness, but because we follow the righteousness of God, grace has set us free to do this. Now let me show you. This becomes Paul's argument through the rest of Romans 7. 7 through 25, Paul is going to describe the work of the law in the unregenerate person. He's going to defend the law. He's going to defend its usefulness. He's going to defend the, pers- defend the work of the law and one who has no power to keep it. But then you come to chapter 8, and notice chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is, and notice, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes to the present tense, those who are in Christ, those who are now in Christ, there is no condemnation. He's going to contrast these two conditions. Life without the Spirit, life with the Spirit. Life under the law, the life under the rule of God, the rule of Christ. It's going to show the complete inability of the law to save and the ability of the Spirit to help us keep the law, fulfill the law. The point is, as believers, we no longer look to the law as a path uh, to make us righteous. 
nor do we fear the law as a source of condemnation because we have fallen short, because that condemnation has been satisfied in Christ Jesus. Instead, we have died, and we are alive in Christ, and now in Christ we fulfill the law. Fulfill it on one hand, because his righteousness has been credited to us, so our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, because his righteousness is credited to us. But also, we fulfill the law because the Spirit of God leads us to keep it. That's exactly what we're going to see in chapter 8. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We're going to see that the work of God's Spirit. The point then, as Paul comes here, is to defend. The law isn't a waste. The law isn't uh, useless. The law hasn't been removed out of the way. The law, in fact, is even operating today. But the law is for the lawless. The law is for the rebellious. The law is for the unrighteous because it reveals their unrighteousness. And the law reveals the the just condemnation of God upon anyone who rebels. The law is useful. The law is holy, just, and good. It's just not our master. It's not our master. It's not our ruler. Christ is our ruler. The grace of God found in Christ Jesus, the work of the Spirit is our ruler. Christ doesn't take us away from the law. Actually, Christ helps us to keep the law, fulfill the law. This is the joyful walk of the Christian life. We come back next week. We're going to see the for a while section. We're going to see the life of of the unbeliever who's living under the tyranny of the law and with no ability to keep it. We'll begin that next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. I liked how um, towards the end, he hit on the point that we actually serve God and talked about the fruit, but also kind of pointed towards the future without just leaving it and saying, we're free So he's not saying that we can do whatever we want um, in that regard, but the law is no longer a master over us. Mm -hmm. I would say let's do an overall view. Overall view, I think this is, I guess, more of a meaty, deeper kind of sermon. Mm -hmm. To me, I did not feel the sense that um, a non-regenerate person was the target audience and to get and try, you know, like to compel him to accept Christ. I didn't hear, I agree. I didn't necessarily hear a call mm-hmm. um, either. I didn't really feel a conviction of sin either, but it does again, I might be saying that with bias and being a Christian for the, you know, large portion of my life. Right. Um, I can't speak if, from a non-believer's perspective, but I didn't really, I didn't really hear any kind of terminology of saying that pointed out to anything in my life that would point to like this is sin. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that if you think this way, you need to fix. I mean, if you sit there long enough and you think about it and about your point of view of what the law was, is or could be for you today, tomorrow, whatever, you can maybe make an argument of the way you maybe thought how the law applied to your life today could have necessarily, I don't know if you would even call it sin, just maybe Mm -hmm. be misguided. But I just didn't feel 
any conviction of sin or a call to repent. Um, that's just my takeaway. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, definitely, he's definitely heavily teaching his congregation right now. And I think his focus going through, I mean, he's teaching Romans. So yeah. <laughs> it's going to be heavy. The, um, next, the next verse actually starts talking about different types of sins. And like, I wouldn't know to lust, right? right. Or to covet. And, and that was going to be my point. I, I really wish he maybe did it through 12, but I think because his introduction and his historical background was so heavy and he really wanted people to understand what the law is, I, I think he, he might have just ran out of time to really cover the whole passage. Um, but again, all of these points is, is a style of preaching, um, but, but knowing a good, a good sermon will do a balance of all of mm-hmm. this but it's really not easy to do, especially when you're doing, it depends on the passage you're doing. You do want to give the person context. You do want to give the person what the text says, but you do also want to give him the gospel and tell him why Jesus is so important. And so balancing those things, like I said in the beginning of this episode, doesn't always work out perfectly, right? And um, But for me, the sermon was definitely beneficial. It was definitely a, a teaching sermon. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, but I'm going along with what Serge said. This is definitely not a sermon where uh, there was teaching of what sin is and what what the gospel is and why it's important to the to the unconverted. And so, um, I mean, I give him benefit of that a little bit credit. He did say how explain pretty well how Jesus fulfilled the law mm-hmm. on our behalf, and now His righteousness is imputed to us. He did say that, yeah, yeah, but he didn't really talk much about you know uh as i mean he kind of he kind of mentioned it I, I just wish he talked more about us being guilty of sin and how we deserve to go to hell and by the grace and mercy of god like he didn't really present the gospel in its fullness mm-hmm. uh, i just and again like you said this is romans this is a very theo- theology heavy foundational kind of book where you know, that might not be as evident in every passage. And this is probably one of them. Um, and I, I'm not one to say that he should have done it in this sermon. But I mean, this is my first time hearing him. So I kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. You can't always hit all the targets. Yeah, uh, for sure. Especially with something like this. And what we're making are observations. We're not setting a standard and <laughs> making rules. Um, we're just setting observations of what a good sermon will hold. And I think more of the gospel would have been awesome. Yeah. Was this a good sermon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Definitely to the more mature Christian, yeah. I think. Yeah. The most benefit the mature Christian will get from this than a, a person that's either newly converted or unconverted yet. Here's a thought that I've had, and I'm not saying this because I have a bias, um, but regarding the gospel message being clearly displayed or a hit on sin and then explaining about Christ. I don't think that has to be in every sermon. Yeah, I agreed. Um, I think given the opportunity, uh, sure, it's definitely going to be good because you don't know who's in the congregation as far as whether they're believers or non-believers. Um, you can even have visitors, you know, so if you can talk about the gospel, can talk about sin, but also talk about God's forgiving grace, Mm -hmm. go for it. And if you don't, that's a huge missed opportunity for you to actually share the gospel. Mm -hmm. But here I think, and it could be depending on how you're explaining it. Right. Cause 
the message that Paul writes is to believers and not to non-believers. So the way that he's explaining it is also to believers could be, you know, yeah, but I, I, I agree. If there is an opportunity to share the gospel, you should do it. Yeah. So I think as we wrap up before prayer, did he read the passage? Yes. Yeah. He studied the passage. Did he give us the context? <laughs> a lot of it. It was, it was awesome. Um, it definitely, definitely uh, learned a lot from it. Uh, did he give us the gospel? He brought up Christ, but I don't think he brought it up in a gospel sense. I don't, he, he, there was hints of it there. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel like he drove it home. Yeah. That's it. Um, yeah. And so those are the three criteria. We kind of just break stuff down, but obviously they're not rules and they're not standards and they're just observations. Compared to previous sermons, he did not bring mm-hmm. up any unrelated passages nor agreed any of the, even though maybe we don't all agree that um, his intro was like short. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that his intro, there was nothing unrelated to the sermon mm-hmm. that he was actually talking about. He was actually pretty much setting a foundation for the sermon or trying to set up a foundation for it, which I think up to that point when he started reading it, I was like, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um, I will say compared to our previous sermons that we've reviewed, his exp- exposition was actually on point Yeah, absolutely. compared to the previous ones where he actually let the text... He explained what the text meant, and our he kind of he, he kind of helped. Uh, he kind of talked about the application too, um, and so he did a good hermeneutic. He explained what the text actually meant. It didn't just have some sort of agenda and cherry pick the verse and try to somehow correlate and prove a point. Yeah. And we really go ahead, Mark. I had a question, um, and I don't know. Maybe you guys thought of this or not. Uh, verse three, where it's talking about if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, right? Verse four, um, where he says, so my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another. Now that I even looked it up, like kind of the base Greek word used there is similar is Paul trying to actually make a correlation between a relationship and then us being able to join Christ where we couldn't before because of the law, we were tied down like, but now because we died um, to the law, we can actually be joined to Christ. That's a question that I would like to ask, you know, like, is there an actual correlation there or am I reading too much into the text? Join us next time. <laughs> yeah. Um, as we wrap up, we hope you guys see that there is very, very drastic differences between a solid expository sermon, a sermon that teaches or a pastor that teaches or a, a pastor that just a speaker. Um, you notice these differences right away. And like we said in the beginning, you do not have to be this very educated high scholar of theology to understand these basics. You can definitely grasp a message and grasp where this person's coming from and how much studying and homework he did preparing uh, just by listening to how he goes through the word. I think the most important thing is, is the foundation, which is the word. He definitely, there's a difference between somebody preaching a topic or somebody preaching a speech that they've probably said hundreds of times and 
doesn't matter what crowd and they just want the crowd to be rowdy or is or is the person preaching actually teaching a congregation and really letting this text do its job and i think those those differences are huge and this this is definitely a different sermon um we hope you enjoyed listening to this and uh, as always we'll finish off with a prayer thank you heavenly father for giving us another opportunity to hear god's word and to hear God's word being taught. Um, let us always be on top of listening and trying to discern what we're hearing from the pulpit. Let us always be thinking about it and let us never have doubt that we are unable to do this. I think we can all do this and we can all exposit the word if we just put our due diligence and our effort into the text and let the text speak to us and let us understand uh, where we are, what we're hearing and so that it Um, all benefits and glorifies your name. Thank you for all that you do for us. Uh, Be with us. May your name be praised. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope God was able to speak to your heart so now you can go and share it with others. Feel free to leave any questions, prayer requests, or blessings. Join us on Instagram and share our podcast with others. And remember, always keep your heart in Scripture.